Used to, very much. All right. Well, welcome to everybody. We're just delighted to have everyone here this morning. Um, a particular joy is when the Lord uh, brings folks uh, to our fellowship and in his good timing adds them officially to our membership by covenant and we are very thankful to be able to rejoice in that happening today. Um, Joe and Anna Zering have come to us uh, from um, far to the west. Um, yes, I'm not going to hold it against them at all. We're thankful that they're here and um, they uh, were part of a sister church there's a sister denomination, and so uh, they were able to transfer in, and we're so thankful that they were able to do that, even as uh, some others that didn't have that happy circumstance are being forced to go through the grindstone of membership classes. Uh, but hopefully it's not too much of a grind. Uh, by the way, folks, we are meeting this afternoon, just remember that. But uh, as we... As we welcome Joe and Anna officially in, they have met with the, the session uh, this week, and we're very delighted to be able to welcome them into our fellowship. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, it is a great joy to bear witness that the Holy Spirit adds uh, to the church daily such as should be saved, and those that are saved as they move around, and he puts them where he would uh, have them be planted and serve to have them be able to come and, and join with us. We know that the Lord is working uh, to establish his visible earthly kingdom that began at creation. It continues to this day. And so we are thankful that Joe and Susan, or Susan, sorry, we had Joe and Susan Clark. And so now I'm going to do that probably a lot, Anna. I'm sorry. It's just ingrained. Joe and Anna uh, have come uh, today to formally unite with us in this particular local branch of the of the vine. You know, the Old Testament teaches that believers should join a church. I don't know if you uh, realize that or not, but the uh, Israelites were God's old covenant people. He commanded circumcision as part of uh, that um, experience of entering into, as a sign of a covenant relationship and membership in that covenant community. Um, and uh, in Acts chapter 7, the New Testament identifies this old covenant community in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, as the ecclesia, the church. If you were an alien in those days, you had to receive circumcision to become a member of Israel before you could celebrate the Passover. In other words, you had to join the church before you could come to the Lord's table. If you were not circumcised, you were to be excommunicated from the people of God. So there's a pretty clear parallel in the New Testament. Baptism is New Testament circumcision. It marks your addition to the New Covenant community, the church. The Lord's Supper is New Covenant, is the New Covenant Passover. Just as a person had to be circumcised to become a member of Israel before he could celebrate the Passover, so a person has to be baptized to become a member of a church before he can partake of the Lord's Supper. Accordingly, the, accordingly, those who were, were baptized and added to the church were the ones who participated in the breaking of the bread with the apostles, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2. The New Testament presupposes church membership 
Uh, it assumes that every convert joins the church. Conversion includes being added to a visible local church. It was unthinkable that a person might embrace Christ and then choose not to join Christ's church. In fact, those who were not church members were regarded as non-Christians in Matthew 18. Uh, uh, has that inference there very strongly. Biblical Christianity is always intensely, intensely personal, but it is never private, nor is it individualistic. It is a corporate community thing. The New Testament strongly emphasizes that corporate or group character of Christianity. Um, it speaks of believers as together being the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of faith, the temple of uh, the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the saints, the holy nation, the people of God, the family of God, and so on. In, every, in apostolic times, every convert joined the church. Until he did, he was not counted as a convert. And then salvation finally involves church membership. And I'm going to tread lightly here because uh, that can uh, smack of certain sorts of just external religion, which uh, is certainly an error. But the biblical concept of salvation does involve joining the local visible church. In the scriptures, coming to Christ and coming to his church as part of that uh, part of that testimony are one thing, they're not two. Uh, it's very common in our Western society for folks to make professions and do things, maybe at an evangelistic meeting or, or something else, even in the, their own homes or whatever, and then think about whether or not later on they should join a church, and sometimes they never do. But God's Word views coming to Christ and coming to His church as two parts of the same thing. It's kind of like the inside and the outside of full salvation. Inwardly, you turn to God, you cry to Him, the Savior, through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And outwardly, you're identifying yourself as Christ by professing your faith before the church and continuing in worship, learning, and witness with that assembly. Um, when you look at passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 5, you read there that when you join Christ, you're joining the body of Christ. Uh, biblically, Christians serve Christ not in independent isolation, but as living members of his body. So those are some of the foundations of why we do church membership. Um, that connection to Christ and to one another is by covenant or promise. The covenant is the basis for our relationship. This is a voluntary society, Right? Nobody forced you to be here today. Those that have joined here, nobody forced you to join. I might have urged it strongly, but I didn't force you to join. It is voluntary. So there, there has to be a basis of understanding of why we are here and what our roles are and what our responsibilities are to each other in this visible body. Without that Understanding without that covenant back and forth together, there's no solid basis for fellowship, grounds for discipline or discipleship. There's no real accountability. And so to that end here, we've, we have crafted a covenant which declares our mutual bond to one another in terms of what we understand to be the core principles of the Christian faith 
and practical life together. And I won't take time to read all of that. Uh, it's in our bylaws. If anyone wants to read the entire thing, I'll be happy to provide you a copy. But it, it can be summarized in this statement. We passionately desire to behold God, proclaim Christ to the entire world, and pursue godliness. That sums up our covenant together, and it, that governs all of the things that we do as a body. Now, any person is eligible for that communicant covenantal membership in this local church who has repented of his or her sins and has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This, uh, by the way, is a statement from our bylaws also regarding membership. Given assurance of his willingness to receive the sacraments of baptism, if not already lawfully baptized, and the Lord's Supper, and assents to the constitution, discipline, and doctrinal standards of this church. A communicant member is defined as a person who has been baptized, has been made a credible profession of faith in Christ, and has been enrolled and admitted by the session to all the rights of church membership, including the partaking of communion, pastoral oversight, instruction, and government uh, of the church. So how do you get here? Well, uh, in this particular case, with Joe and Anna, um, they uh, were members of a, a church uh, that is a we have a fraternal relationship with, with our denomination. And so uh, we, knowing them very well, uh, we regard each other's membership vows and process and discipline and all that kind of stuff back and forth uh, uh, as on a par with ours, and they do the same with, with us. So that when folks come from one church to the other, it's as if they were just transferring from one of our own churches. So uh, we, we already know the process they've been through, and that satisfies our requirements here. I can also Folks can also come on the basis of a, of a profession of faith, uh, that sort of thing, um, uh, that, uh, or reaffirmation of faith. Maybe they've... Uh, at a time of backsliding or something else, but they've they're coming back. So that kind of those are the kinds of things that are required. Um, they uh, have to uh, meet with the session for a, a little grill, uh, not grilling. No, it's it's a time of testimony and fellowship, really, as the session hears um, the profession of faith and of their desire to join with us and uh, to make sure that they know what they're doing before they commit to this. Because this is a very, very uh, serious uh, and sober matter. Once um, uh, that has been done, then they need to answer some questions. And we've already asked them these questions, so we know what the answers are in session. But at this time, we ask our, uh, our new members to come. So... If uh, Joe and Anna, if you'd come, they will answer these questions publicly as they covenant together with us to stand here in this place in testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Just for the sake of the camera, since it doesn't look like I'm, right now it looks like uh, I'm looks talking like to myself. So. <laughs> People really are joining. It's, you know, it's, yeah. okay. All right. 
Do you acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, except in His sovereign mercy? Yes. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and depend upon Him alone for your salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? Yes. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Yes. Do you affirm your adherence to the covenant of this church, Article 3 of our bylaws? Yes. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Finally, do you promise to submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to pursue its peace and purity? Yes. Wonderful. And to the congregation, particularly to you uh, who are members, uh, do you covenant before God and one another today to receive Joe and Anna Zaring as fellow heirs with you in the inheritance of life, submitting to one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, and bearing one another's burdens in prayer and deed out of obedience to God and love for one another. Yes. So Joe and Anna, having met all the requirements for covenanted membership in this congregation, um, I am delighted to now declare them to be members in good standing of Providence Bible Presbyterian Church, a local visible testimony to the faithfulness of our Lord to redeem a people unto himself. People of God rejoice. Our Lord has shown himself Faithful to build his kingdom as his saints are added to the rank of the visible church militant. Welcome your brother and your sister at this time with the right hand of fellowship in sincere love. To God be the glory. And we'll ask them to stand down here and particularly for our members uh, and adherents as well. But uh, if you're visiting, if you just want to be friendly, you can come up and shake their hand too. Uh, but... Uh, Please come up, extend the right hand of fellowship to them, and welcome them officially. Well, I'm going to start. I guess we'll go this way. Let's take our Bibles, please, 
Turn once again to 2 Timothy chapter... <laughs> oh boy. 2 Kings. No idea where that Timothy came from. <laughs> I've looked right at it and said Timothy. 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23. <clears throat> if you're able, uh, stand with me please for the reading of God's holy word. 2 Kings 23. I'm going to read down through... Verse 25. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of Yahweh, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. And those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of Yahweh, where the women wore hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high priests where the priests, uh, places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun, with fire, and the altars on the roof of the upper chambers of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of Yahweh, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. He sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of Yahweh, that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. 
Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to Yahweh your God as, is, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of Yahweh. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. So we have been talking about revival and what revival, genuine revival looks like, what it's motivated by, what, what the inner heart response is to God and to his word. And today we're going to spend some time looking at essentially where the rubber meets the road. Now that our hearts are stirred up rightly for the witness of God's holy name, now that our rights have been our, our hearts have been put to right in in our thinking by God's word, as we are convicted because of our sin, convicted because of our failure and neglect of God. Now that we are renewed in our covenant with our God to walk in obedience to Him. Now, what does that look like? And Josiah, certainly, as we've seen here in this chapter, lets no, lets no grass grow under his feet. He uh, is motivated and he gets to work. So let's take a look then. We're going to look, well, we've read this passage now, but from verse 4 down through verse 25. Do you remember, for those of you that were here, when we started this four weeks ago, this all began with concern for God's house, particularly the external aspects of it. It was in disrepair. Things were shabby and shambles. They needed to be addressed and taken care of. Josiah looked at this, started throwing some money at it, uh, put that money into the hands of the workmen and the craftsmen said have at it guys we need to we need to clean house but i don't think that when josiah started this that he was thinking of cleaning house any more than just fresh paint and repairs as 
they were going through and dusting things off and finding what they might use and what they might not use and, and so on, discovering all of those things that were tucked away in various rooms, they ran across that scroll. And that scroll that had the law in it, the book of the law, changed everything. It could be easy for us to want to come to a place that looks nice, that feels good, that's comfortable, without really even understanding that we're not just here to come and be comfortable. We're here to meet with the Most High God. And to meet with Him according to His principles, according to His law, and not according to our own imagination. So in a way, what Josiah is about to do is coming full circle back. It doesn't take away anything from the, the righteous and, and appropriate desire to see God's house in good repair, to see things functioning the way they should function, to have a, a place that when people come into it, their hearts are lifted up in desire to know this God more that is represented uh, by the external aspects of a building. But ultimately, when we come into this place, it's not about the building. Uh, we could meet in my barn, and the Church of Christ would still be there, because Christ would still be there. Our purpose is to meet with Him, and to have our work, not just the externals restored, but our worship restored of him. There's a, a, a book written by uh, uh, John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a great little book on missions. But in his introduction, he makes this statement. He said, the reason that, the reason that missions exists is because worship doesn't. Why do we do missions? Why do we evangelize? Why do we call people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? It's because, not just because we want to see numbers added. Numbers are great. It's encouraging. But what we want to see is the name of God exalted, the name of our Savior exalted. That that those that come and give testimony to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are doing so not so that we can all say, boy, isn't that great? What wonderful people of faith they are. I pray to God that people in this community never look at our church and go, boy, what wonderful people of God they are. What I want them to say when they look at us and the testimony of our lives is, what a great God they serve. And that is what Josiah is setting out to do in verses 4 and following. He certainly is not out to win any popularity contests in Israel. Just a, that simple reading that we just did should make that abundantly clear. He is, kicking, uh, he is kicking an ant's nest and turns 
the whole society upside down in, in Judah and in Israel. And perhaps there were some in that time that said, though we don't have any record of it here, but I would not be surprised if there were folks around that say, well, who does he think he is? Just because he thinks he's king, he can do whatever he wants. Well, in that case, actually, he can. But even so, it's like, this, you know, people had their businesses tied to all of this idolatry. People had built their lives around this idolatry, their, their pleasures, their sense of what they were there in life to do, everything. And Josiah just ripped it out of there. In our day, it is very easy to hear all kinds of things about revival going on here, hither and yon, in this country and around the world. But very seldom... Uh, in those discussions, do you see anybody talking about what follows after? It's always about the meeting. It's always about how exciting it was. It's always, it's always about how many people came to that event. And if it's an extended event, to that extended event. But what happens afterwards? Because genuine revival, as we've stated at the very first of this little series, and have stated ever since, Genuine revival produces genuine results because if it's revival that's really coming from God, God is going to accomplish his purposes and he changes things. If nothing changes in the lives of those who've said they're revived, it's not revival. If the church of Jesus Christ does not grow, it's not revival. And I mean permanently. I don't mean just a... There was a lot of talk about revival right after 9-11. Do you remember that? All the churches were full and all that. People were excited. People were like, wow, look what God's doing and so on. It's not that God wasn't doing anything. But they were... Everybody was focused on, of course, the horrific events of 9-11. But also, they were focused on the external matters of, look, how many people are there? Look what's going on. There's lots of prayer. And people of all different faiths are now all praying to somebody. But at least they're all praying. What happened a month later? Were the churches any bigger? No, people left. And all the fighting and the bickering and the, all the wickedness that was there before was still there. So we need to be careful about just latching on to uh, the excitement of external things. We need to be concerned about what Josiah is here, and genuine revival will be concerned for it. The desire to restore corporate purity in God's worship. Let's see what he does here. What does that corporate purity look like? First of all, we're going to see, we see this here throughout. It's scattered throughout. Verses 4 through 8 are probably the heart of it. Also in uh, verse 24, uh, verse 11, verse 20. Um, in fact, this, this whole section is just filled with how uh, uh, Josiah sets out to purge away the wickedness and replace it with Godliness. 
Where does he start? Well, he begins with purging away the false worship that was characteristic of Israel at this time. That worship had several different components to it. The first one was the actual idols themselves, the false gods that they were worshiping. And if you look at things like verse 4, they took out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels, uh, the idolatrous things, the serving pieces, everything else for Baal, uh, Asherah. Asherah, by the way, repeated a number of times here. Asherah is the Canaanite Equivalent of what uh, we would call Mother Earth, that kind of thing. Um, the uh, Earth Goddess. It, it's, it's, most pagan religions like to lift up uh, some version of Mother Earth, and uh, the, that was what Asherah was. And Asherah, to worship her, they would put up poles. Uh, because she was the goddess of life in their mind, uh, they used either poles or they would use trees, living trees. And they, they would, these holy trees or, or, or sacred poles that they would put up, put hangings there to celebrate her and worship her. That's what's going on there. And for all the host of heaven, which the, the sun, the moon, the stars, constellations, all those things that were substitutes for the one true and living God who had made all of those things. Verse 6 speaks of getting rid of them. He, he, and, he, and he didn't just go tuck them away, put them away. Oh, let's put them in a museum. It's a record of you know, what we used to do. No, he, he uh, destroyed them, burned them, chopped them up, burned them, pounded them to dust, scattered the dust, he used it to defile the high places, uh, because uh, once you put uh, dead stuff on the high places, it pretty much took away the sacredness of it. It was looked as a defilement. So it was to discourage returning to those places of worship. Purges these idols out. Verse uh, 11 is another one. Um, the horses the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun with the chariots. They they'd put all of these things, I'm sure they were really impressive. shiny, powerful images they put there at the doors uh, to somehow uh, add to what they were doing with the worship of Yahweh. It's Yahweh's house, where Yahweh had said, this is where my name is. And they had, they had corrupted the worship of God by adding all kinds of other things and putting them on the same level as the God of heaven. Josiah gets rid of all of it. Very much a a slash and burn approach to idolatry. He didn't leave anything undone. In verse 24, we see that as well. Not only in the public worship, he wasn't content with that. He went, he got to meddling. He went into people's homes. And put away the the uh, the mediums and the necromancers, the uh, fortune tellers, the the um, witches, wizards, that sort of thing, household gods, the idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah, scattered around in people's homes and villages and in their their private lives. It all had to go. And Josiah was not content 
to leave any stone unturned. Now, the next aspect that we we can grasp that, okay, get rid of the idols. We can look at our own hearts and say, yep, yep, there are there are uh, plenty of idols in, in our own hearts. Things of our possession, we can we can worship and adore our possessions, our health, our uh, place in society, um, our friends, uh, our. And I'm gonna. Well, I think everybody here knows how I feel about this subject. Our freedoms. Any number of other things that we hold more dear than doing, that many people hold more dear than doing righteously in life. Willing to cut any corners to secure them. Those are idols. We need to put them away and leave no stone unturned. And that's a great place. But those things, those idols are not just occurring in our lives in a vacuum. Some of them we, can, we have no trouble coming up with on our own. <laughs> Absolutely. But for other things, we look to, whether it's writers, whether it's uh, people who claim to be ministers of God, whether it's uh, just movements of people, denominations, whatever. And believe me, I'm not saying denominations are and can be a very good thing. Uh, but they can also be Um, corrupted by the sinfulness of man, just like any other institution. We can look at those things and say, well, I have this example. I've been taught this. This is is how I've been led. And perhaps there were some in Israel that thought, well, the priests are here. They're doing this kind of stuff. They're they're that. You know, it's, it's kind of their fault. Well, they are to blame for their role in it. Everyone has the Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel, every man will die for his own sin. But nonetheless, there is something, the fact that when you have false leaders that are leading the troops to do that which is ungodly and righteous, who are lifting up heresy as if it were truth, who are denying their Lord and Savior and adding to true Christianity other, other deities of, uh, of whatever kind into the mix... They also need to be purged. If at any time in my ministry here, I turn from the gospel of Jesus Christ and cast the name of God into doubt in your minds, I don't care how much you love me, you need to kick me to the curb. I need to be put on trial. If I'm a heretic, I need to be put on trial for it. I need to be turned out, not only from this congregation, but have my credentials removed so that I am no longer a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ in appearance. So that I don't lead others astray. And it's interesting what Josiah does here. And he's, he's clearly de- dealing with two different kinds of priests here. And you can tell that by his actions. There's one set of priests that are the Levitical priests. But they've been scattered all over the country. 
And they are presiding at the high places and they're all doing sacrifices everywhere. But this is a problem. And why is it a problem? Because where was... Uh, where were um, um, sacrifices to be done? They were to be done in Jerusalem. Not in every hill and under every tree. So here you have some Levitical priests giving the appearance of respectability and, you know, yeah, we're worshiping Yahweh. After all, we're the Levitical priests. Well, yeah, I realize we're not doing it in Jerusalem. But do you remember when Jeroboam split the kingdom? What was his excuse? What did he do? At Bethel, he erected uh, the, uh, his version of the golden calves. Why? Because he didn't want Israel going down to Jerusalem. That would sort of defeat the purpose of dividing the kingdom. He wanted to keep them all up there. So he gave them their own place of worship. And they kind of got in that habit. It's convenient. We don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. We don't have to go do all that stuff. We can do it right here. We don't have to worship God in the institution and the fellowship of his saints. We can do it in our own homes. We can do it in the trees. We can go out in a boat and, uh, and, and go do all that stuff and say, yeah, I'm worshiping God. Yeah, it's convenient. It's not what God has called us to do. And Josiah said, no, guys, I'm pulling your card. And he deposes them. And he calls them all back to Jerusalem. These Levitical priests. That's uh, verse 5. He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. And he also got... also stopped the ones who were burning incense to Baal. So there were, you've got those who are out there supposedly worshiping Yahweh and those who are uh, worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. But uh, he had something particular in mind for the gods of the Canaanites, uh, the, uh, the priests of the gods of the Canaanites, and you read that in verse 20. And this, to our modern sensibilities, sounds really harsh. He executes them. He sacrifices those priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. That would, again, would defile those altars. Now we look at that and recoil in horror. <clears throat> what a bloody mess. And yet I want you to think about this. As tough as that is, Josiah is absolutely following what God had said in his law was to be done to idolaters. They were to be put to death and particularly those who led others in idolatry. It was part of God's law. It was part of the fabric of Israel. It wasn't like those people suddenly, you know, were just out there in the goodness of their heart doing their own thing. No, they knew they were in rebellion against the God of heaven. They knew what the penalty was for idolatry, and they did it anyway. It would be an equivalent kind of thing to someone who commits a crime worthy of death where the statutes are capital punishment. They've got no complaint, no cause to legitimately complain. When they're called to account, tried, convicted, and 
somewhat summarily executed. It's not being cruel to those people. In fact, it would be cruel to those whom they had harmed if they did not suffer what the penalty was, that they knew what the penalty was, and then they were allowed to continue on and live and continue their crimes, which happens again and again and again in the name of compassion. That's not compassion. These priests that were executed were deceivers, knowingly, idolaters, working at contrary purposes to the God of the universe. The penalty was clear and they suffered it. Tough stuff. Tough stuff. Uh, our society, of course, wouldn't allow for this today. Um, but the principle of getting them completely out is something that ought to be done if they're there. The third thing, I really thought I was going to finish this point today. All right, it'll be one more week. But I do want to finish this purging point, so hang in there with me. Verse 7, uh, 8, 10, 12, 15, some interesting things here. Some of them appalling to read about. That he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of Yahweh where the women wore hangings for the Asherah. With idolatry invariably comes sexual immorality. And as Israel... I mean, how do you in your right mind think that this is okay? That in the house of Yahweh, who says, thou shalt not commit adultery, you have cult prostitutes living in there so that people can come and worship God through sexual immorality. What in the world? And yet that is the perversity of sin. Josiah gets rid of that. Verses uh, 8 through 10, the, the high places of the gates, right there at the gate. They can just take care of it right there as they go in. Um, kind of reminds me of some of the temples I've been in in Southeast Asia. When you walk in, uh, you take your shoes off, um, and uh, they hand you your little incense things right there. It's, it makes it all very easy to go through little rituals and do your thing. Um, and they don't, when you say, no, 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 they look at you like, oh, tourist, you know. But they make it very easy. And that's kind of the point here. Uh, verses uh, 12 through 15, uh, the high places that were east to the south, everywhere, Solomon, had corrupted in his mind and heart by his wives, built high places for those various gods of the nations that he married those women from. And people continue to use them as far back as Solomon. Long-standing traditions that people expected. And Josiah says, I don't care about the tradition. I don't care if it was Solomon who put it there. It's wrong and it goes. 
All of these things that I've just described to you are all various, and I just use the term structures in my notes. You can put whatever you want in the blank there. But purging structures that make idolatry easy and attractive. The prostitutes and the hangings and the, the statues and the high places that are right there. All that easy stuff. The fact of the matter is, is that no matter how you dress it up, idolatry remains ugly. But even in the church, we find today a, a readiness, a willingness of mind to justify unbiblical or outright pagan practice if it works. Practices that are sensational to get everybody's excitement going up whether it's smoke machines and fancy lights, the new lights we're going to get have all kinds of colors. We could set it up to work with the music. We could have our, we could have our ripping time in here with those lights. Yeah, I keep saying no. Because our faith in Jesus Christ is more about fancy lights, smoke machines, fireworks, um, rock bands or anything else that we think is going to stir people up so that they'll come in and stay. Things that are sensational. I've got four S's for you. Sensational. It, there's no blanks for it, so you'll just have to find room somewhere. Sensational. Sensual. Sentimental. Sacramental. That's the hardest one. The others you can kind of write off and go, yeah, well, I get it. You know, we're not supposed to just be all stirred up. And we're not just to be, you know, what our pleasures are. And even just kind of feel good and warm and fuzzy about something, so therefore we'll do it. Yeah, okay, I can see that. But sacramental is when you actually do the practices that we're called upon to do. Like the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do in a little bit. Or baptism, when those things occur. Or church membership, those kinds of things. And instead of seeing them as they rightly are, responses unto our Lord and entrances and, and so on into the life of the church, we look at doing those things as if they save us. And that's all idolatry. It's all pagan. With this blatant disregard for God's appointed order, priests were scattered everywhere throughout the land, as I said before, instead of where they were supposed to be. No doubt in the name of convenience. Now there's an interesting verse that I, I've got to say something about there because it, it kind of sticks out and it seems a little odd where in verse 9, the priests did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. So these Levitical priests that were called back they were deposed from their office. They were no longer allowed to serve. However, God graciously didn't put them to death. They were allowed to partake of the unleavened bread and have that, that benefit there, but they were no longer allowed to serve. So that's what was going on there. You know, this, uh, this idea of putting things into place just to make it easy for people to worship and easy to people, for people to come to God. It's not that we want to make it hard and put obstacles in that are of our own making. But we need to go by what God says for how we come into his presence and do those things that he calls us to do and not tolerate it if it's not there. And when you look at revivals, 
uh, throughout history. I was reading, I've been reading uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on Revival, awesome book. Um, and he points out that historically, uh, revivals have been marked by strong emotional responses to the point where people were you know, prostrate on the ground and those kinds of things that are so easy for the devil to imitate in the hearts and lives of people. So we're not talking about getting rid of all emotion. No, not at all. Think of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. People were hanging onto the front edge of the pews in front of them, weeping for fear that they were going to slide into hell. That's how strongly that message hit them. So emotional responses are to be expected when we're confronted with our sin and, and broken before him. But to just be sensational and make things happy-go-lucky so that people will come uh, misses, not, doesn't just miss the point. It's a, it's a deadly error, and it needs to be purged. And finally, verse 16, another odd kind of thing. He sees tombs up there, and he, he goes in and he pulls all these bones out. And the subtext here, uh, particularly uh, in light of the exception that's made, is that these tombs were were memorials of those that, uh, these are on the high places, there were, these were memorials and memories of, of uh, false prophets, false priests, those who were pagan worshipers, and he pulled all those things out, the bones out, crushed them up, put them on the altars, defiled, defiled of, of those things with dead men's bones. We need to purge, just as Josiah did, ungodly memorials, remembering the ungodly with honor and favor um, in the church. Whether it's uh, false leaders, false pastors, um, or just uh, thinking fondly about those who have uh, afflicted afflicted the church at large with their false teaching. But there's a reason why we don't allow just anything in the library. Um, I've got a set of I got a set of books in my office that's up on a very high shelf that takes some effort to get to. Uh, that's it's all it's everything from witchcraft stuff to pagan stuff to uh, atheist stuff to all this that that's promoting all of this stuff. But don't put it out there. If anybody wants to research that stuff, let me know. I'll, yeah, that's fine, but we're not going to honor it by putting it out there. We're not going to promote false teachers not knowingly, in this church. And if we come across a favorite author that's, that gets um, found to be walking and teaching and disobedience to God's word and we find out about it, we'll be sure to let you know. Because we're not going to honor the wicked. On the other hand, what did Josiah do with that prophet, which is from, a, by the way, um, um, 1 Kings uh, 17 and back in, actually back in chapter 13, where this unnamed prophet comes and he makes these predictions that we heard about here in this reading. And he was put there in that other prophet's tomb. And Josiah said, let him alone. That other prophet disobeyed God in some respects, but he did speak on God's behalf. He was faithful. You know, I'm thankful that the Lord doesn't cut us off 
for our, our sins, which we have. But he does recognize and preserve the memory here of someone who was faithful, at least to some respect, and spoke God's truth clearly in that situation. That's worth honoring. So, purging. This is the negative side. Purging away what's wicked. Purging away the idols and the false uh, teachers and the, the structures and the rituals that, that uh, take us away from what God has said in his word. And, and purging away those things that we need to put out of our minds and help us to remember the things that should be remembered. Next week, God willing, we will wrap this up. And think about the positive side, the flip side then. All right, now that we've cleaned house, now what do we do? What do we put in its place? By God's grace, we'll do that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Lord, hard things here, things that that even reading about having taken place all those hundreds and hundreds of years ago. To see the things that were done are, are even shocking to us. And the more so as we think about the enormity of what Josiah did. And yet, Lord, through him, you teach us the, the passion and the commitment and the aggressiveness with which we should be approaching sin in our hearts, in our church community, and in our lives in general. Lord, help us to purge away the wicked, the wickedness, the, the, the excuses, the ease, the other things that we have that make it so easy to turn away from what you call us to do. And help us to live faithfully unto you as revived saints for your glory and our good.